Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, how are you, everybody? What's going on? This is Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. I am in Los Angeles, and it is nice to be with you. Claire Massoud is my guest today. What a thrill. She has a new book out called A Dream Life. It is a novel from Tableau Tales. It actually drops, I believe, on January 15th in hardcover and ebook. Again, it is called A Dream Life. My conversation with Claire Massoud coming up momentarily. So here we are. We are in, what, mid-January, essentially. And it has been busy. It has been a busy start to the new year. I spent much of the past two weeks doing final corrections, final changes on my new novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's coming out in May. And... I have to say, it was a bit of a nerve-wracking process. More so than I think I might have anticipated. And I think I talked about this last week, too, because I was immersed in it last week, thinking that it was going to be all done, and then the process got extended a bit into this week, and I just finished everything yesterday. I think I did. (laughs) The book is now off to the printer, officially. And I don't know. You get down to the wire like this where you have to sign off. And the pressure can ratchet up a little bit, the internal pressure. Because this is it. After this, it's over. You can't noodle with it anymore. And what made it stressful is that I kept finding things. Or I thought that I kept finding things. Things that needed fixing or things that I wanted to change. And then it became a game of uh, starting to wonder if I was missing other things. Because I was finding I was finding stuff. Stuff that I couldn't believe I was finding. And then I was like, well, what else did I miss? I started to drive myself crazy. Because I have been living with this text for a long time. I've been living with this story for a number of years. It can seem disconcerting to get through all of these hoops and to do all of this work and then get down to what is essentially the end game and you're still tweaking. 
at the 11th hour. And it can get a little bit scary. You start to question yourself. How did I miss this? I've read this book 600 times. (laughs) And I'm only now discovering that there are 147 errors in the first 80 pages. So I'm being a little bit dramatic, you know, but, uh, I think that part of it and possibly the majority of it is ordinary neuroses. I think it's pretty standard for a writer at this stage of the game. I did my part. I wrote the book. I revised the book. I reread the book a hundred times. I made my corrections. I read it again. I made some more corrections. I read it again. I found some more stuff and so on. I think I read my novel front to back five times over the past 10 days. It's too much. You start to go cross-eyed after a while. And then I think, you know, you start to have these mood swings. These shifting perceptions. One minute you love it, the next minute you hate it. And I think you're going to hear me talk about this a little bit with uh, Claire Massoud, today's guest, where I am describing this phenomenon, which I don't think gets talked about all that much especially in the publicity phase of uh, publishing. Most authors, once they get to publication, they tend to avoid thinking about this sort of thing, <laughs> like reliving it. you got to try to stay positive when you're out there making the rounds and uh, trying to sell books. I understand it. But uh, in addition to being a writer, as you well know, I am a literary podcaster. So it is my job, my solemn duty to talk about this sort of thing. And really what it comes down to is that being a creative person in any field, in whatever medium, I think that being a creative person just means that you have to be willing to accept humiliation You have to be willing to deal with whatever embarrassments come along with it. And there will be embarrassments. There will be these like quiet moments of humiliation. (laughs) Uh, It's embarrassing to put something out into the world. Or there's some element of that to it. Like I think about acting, for example. And I want to say I was reading something about Al Pacino once. I think it was Pacino, how early in his career, or maybe all the way through, I I can't recall, but basically it was Pacino or some other actor talking about how he would force himself to watch his dailies on set so that he could see his day's work and evaluate his performance. And he was talking about how excruciating it was to have to watch oneself act. And that really struck me. I think I would be that way. 
I mean, who would enjoy seeing themselves <laughs> acting? I mean, can you imagine? You do a movie and then you have to watch the movie? What a nightmare. I mean, it's bad enough when you're on the page, like you see yourself on the page in writing. Imagine having to confront yourself on a giant screen. You could see every blemish, every false note. Get out of here! Like imagine you're Al Pacino. (laughs) Imagine you're Al Pacino at the premiere of Scent of a Woman. Get on with your life, would you? What life? I got no life! I mean, this was me two days ago. I'm in the dark here! Do you understand? <laughs> I'm in the this dark. is me uh, reading my book for the fifth time in ten days, trying to figure out what I've done with my life. I'm in the dark here! Do you understand? All right, so I do want to say some quick thank yous to people who have pre-ordered my novel, be brief and tell them everything. Thank you to Robin McLean, Carly Alamo, Lauren Grodstein, Jonathan Herman, David Mogolov, Mark Paplava, Monica Corcoran, Michelle McCormick, and Boyd Holland. I appreciate it, you guys. I will be sending you a note and a limited edition other people sticker in the mail. Oh my God. So if you're out there, and you would like to pre-order my book, please know that I will send you a note in the mail. If you send me a screenshot of the proof of purchase, just email it to letters at otherppl.com or DM me on Twitter at otherppl or on Instagram at otherppl.podcast. Pre-order the book. It helps, and you'll get a sticker and a note. I might even draw you a picture. I don't know. Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Crossing, publisher of the novel Blue by Emily Prophet, winner of the Grand Prix Littéraire de l'Association d'Écrivains de Langue Française. How's that? Did I do okay? Uh, it won that award in 2009. Blue is poetic and gorgeous and occupies the liminal space between memory and life. Written by the award-winning poet Emily Prophet, Blue is Prophet's first novel translated into English. Traveling alone from Miami to Port-au-Prince, our narrator finds comfort at the airport. She feels free to ponder the silence that surrounds her homeland, her mother, her aunts, and her own inner thoughts. Between two places, she sees how living in poverty keeps women silent, forging their identities around practicality and resilience. From a distance, she is drawn inevitably homeward toward her family and the glittering blue Caribbean Sea. Blue by Emily Prophet, translated by Tina Cover, out now from Amazon Crossing. Amazon Crossing publishes award-winning and best-selling books from around the globe, making international literature accessible to many readers for the first time. For more information, visit apub.com. That's A-P-U-B dot com. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, 
and The Occasional Triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So today's guest is Claire Massoud. She is the author of seven works of fiction, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Emperor's Children and The Burning Girl. She also has a, a new work of nonfiction out called Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. It's an autobiography and essays. Claire Massoud is a, a recipient of a Guggenheim and a Radcliffe Fellowship and the Strauss Living Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. One of our more decorated writers, uh, more accomplished writers of literary fiction and nonfiction. Her new novel, A Dream Life, is now available from Tableau Tales. It was just such a delight to talk with Claire and to meet her and to hear about her work and about her approach to work and how she got to where she is. So without any further ado, this is my conversation with Claire Massoud. And her new novel, One More Time, is called A Dream Life. My mother was... Canadian, Anglophone Canadian, and my father was French, Pinois, so French from Algeria, but colonial, not Algerian. And they met when they were studying, and they moved around. And, and my father was first studying in the United States, and then he went to work for a French company that posted him in different places, including the United States, but then Australia, and then Canada, and, and then back to the United States. And so we, you know, when we were kids, we moved around a good bit but we also had my grandparents in France and my grandmother in Canada and and so those were places that we came back to each year we would go and visit Australia was considered a hardship posting because it was so far away so the company paid for us to visit to for the family to go back and visit relatives every year so we got to go visit our families every year but so we, when I was a kid we were there from the time I was four till nine and a half and then we were in Canada to in Toronto till I was 13. And then I went to boarding school, actually, um, because we were moving to the States, but my parents weren't sure they wouldn't have to move again. So is there a place that you call home? I mean, I guess nowadays it's the States and it's Cambridge. But if, you know, as you were growing up, did you have a sense of national identity? Like, did one prevail over the next? Or did you just feel that you were kind of a, a muddle? You know, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, so somewhere 
in between, I guess, I was the only American in my family. I was born in the United States, but my sister was born in France. And I sponsored my parents for green cards when I turned 21. Up till then, they were on my dad's business visa. And my sister does not have American nationality. And she went to university in Canada. And then she lived in Russia. She worked in Russia. And now she lives in the UK. So there's that strangeness, right, that we're family, but we are not nationally synchronous or whatever. And it's been quite inconvenient because I have French nationality through my father. My husband's British. And of course, until Brexit, it was all great. It was all essentially one place. But now with Brexit, it's not so simple anymore. So I, I think chiefly what I felt over time was being inadequately everything. So not French enough, not Canadian enough, you know, and sometimes not American enough. Yeah. And this this notion that moving around and families fragmenting, you know, people living all over the place, including all over the world, is a relatively new phenomenon. It's something that I've thought about myself recently, especially now that I have kids and I'm imagining them getting older. And the idea of them going far away is not pleasant. <laughs> and I think back, this didn't used to happen until the forces of capitalism really often cause people to go out in search of money or better opportunity. And I'm in a family where my sisters live in the Midwest. I live on the West Coast. Uh, we're all over the place. And I don't get to see them as much. And I don't like that. I, <laughs> I wish, I, I think hopefully maybe things are reverting. I don't know. But I, I definitely have noted that to myself that, boy, it sure would be nice if I could keep my kids close to me. I don't, I don't want to have to only see them once or twice a year. And I'm even imagined like following them wherever they go if they do decide to leave me, you know? So I don't know. It just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem healthy is what I think. It's not good for families to be far apart unless of course it's like super toxic in a, you know, not a healthy family, but if in a healthy family, it's not good for everybody to be so far apart. We should be closer. It would be much more fun. Totally. I mean, I, I think there's so many broader sort of societal moments behind these phenomena. So so like a, a European family, my, my father's family, you know, I mean, historically going far back, everybody lived in the same village and just stayed there for centuries, right? And I think there's a very sort of a North American idea of individualism and self-realization and success being, you know, following your star and fulfilling your dreams that encourages people to, you know, get on a plane and go somewhere. And that's part of an American dream, but it's also part of a 20th century dream of progress. And it has profound consequences that are quite complicated and isolating. And it's it's really challenging. And I think in the same way that we had some idea, I think for a long time, you know, sort of post-war, post-World War II, second half of the 20th century, this idea that we will just put all the dark stuff from the past behind us and we will move forward into a bright future without, you know, in which we leave those things behind. So we leave behind the legacy of, of anti-Semitism, we'll leave behind racism, we'll leave all that behind. And, we'll be, and then, you know, you get to the beginning of the 21st century and people look around and say, well, you know, actually, that's not working out so well. You know, we <laughs> haven't really been able, <laughs> haven't really been able to leave that stuff behind. It's all still with us. We're just pretending it's not. So we actually have to address it and confront it and go through it rather than, 
you know, and I, and I think that's sort of the same. I, I feel the same way about these the, almost these familial questions. Right. I remember when I was in college or, or around that age and my French grandfather, I said to my French grandfather, nothing is more important than my friends. And he said, nonsense, nothing is more important than your family. And I was like, you know, nonsense. You know, I, I, you, that's old hat, you old school person. You don't, you know, you don't know what the world is like today. What matters is, and, and, and of course I adore my friends and, and I think of, there are friends who I think of as family, but, but the idea it's a, it's a very contemporary and my grandfather would still insist were he alive, misguided notion to think that your friends will replace your family. I mean, again, as you said, in toxic instances where there are toxic families, people make their own families and they make an alternative family. But in some general way, the people who will put up with you no matter what, <laughs> there, there aren't that many of them. Right, you know? there, right. There aren't that many of them. So, And uh, was this the French grandfather who would correct your letters when you sent them to him in red ink <laughs> to correct yes, your French? <laughs> totally, totally. Yes. Same, same as strongly opinionated, you know, patriarchal, old school kind of guy, you know. And yeah. where, where in France? So he and my grandmother were both actually sort of, they were born in Algeria, right? They were uh, from co uh, colonial families. My grandmother's family was chiefly Italian. Her last name was Italian, Italian and Spanish. His family was French and Maltese, but they were in, in Algeria. And then he joined the Navy and he was so, so they moved around a lot, but they ended up living in Toulon, which is in the south of France, which is, you know, the along with Brest in the north, they're the two big naval ports. So that's that's where they were in the south of France. Okay. So in a dream life, you are depicting an American family moving to Sydney for work-related reasons, uh, the husband's work-related reasons. He's a banker, and he and his wife rent what I guess you would, what would you call it? A manor, uh, a mansion, uh, this, yeah. big, this big house on Sydney Harbor, which is quite a step up from their apartment in New York city. So this is a big kind of socioeconomic shift and a big lifestyle shift for them. And the portrait that you're painting here is centered on the mother, Alice and her adjustment in particular and her inner life in particular as she adjusts to this completely new country, this completely new experience, this completely new set of uh, social obligations, which for me as kind of, kind of an, uh, not a shut in. I mean, I have a very active life with my family, but like the, the, all these parties, I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> the dinner parties and, the, you know, the hosting and all this kind of stuff. Like she's dealing with all that. And I read, uh, I, I was reading a review of the book and it was characterized as an evisceration of privilege. Uh, I, don't, I think evisceration, it might apply. It feels a little strong for me. It's more like a careful examination of it. Can you just talk a little bit about that aspect of the story? Is that accurate or do you feel that you had a different intent? I've had some people respond to the book with very different reactions and, and friends with young children read the book and said, oh, it's so creepy, right? Um, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's just a horror story, right? And because it's about, you know, about having people come into your house and not necessarily knowing who they are. 
and and then other people saying you know it's an evisceration of of a privileged life and other people saying you know this is what it's this is writing about what it's like to be a a wife and mo- mother you know what i would say about this but also about anything i'm i write i think is that it's the checkoff line it's not my job to tell you that horse thieves are bad people it's my job to tell you what this horse thief is like so I, i'm trying to capture something that seems to me to reflect human experience or something that I believe to be sort of humanly true. And, and, and then how people experience it, it's a Rashomon thing. Like you can have five people experience the same thing and they'll, each of them will have a different story. So or a different version of it. So, so it, it's not, not an evisceration of, of privilege, but I wouldn't say that I set out with that as my primary intent. I mean, my primary intent is to try to, I mean, to be honest, my primary intent was to to try to put myself in my mother's shoes, right? That we moved to Australia when when my sister and I were really small, and it had real logic for my dad. He knew what he was doing and 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 why he was going there, which to a place that at the time was wicked far away, you know. And um and and it was hard to make phone calls. You know, you had to wait sometimes for half an hour for the operator to call you back and then the phone call would last like five minutes and it was really crackly and basically you were saying, How are you? We're okay. How are you? And then, you know, so it really felt far away in a different way than now. It's still far away, but it felt even further. And I think my my mom was like, geez, how did this happen? Like, this is not my beautiful life, you know? And that was a fairly common condition of being a wife, you know? That was the lot of a lot, that was the lot of a lot of women, you know, to, you, your husband gets a job and you go. I mean, I used to think this, my late parents-in-law, my, my father-in-law became a minister in his late 50s or early 60s. And suddenly my mother-in-law had to be the vicar's wife, right? Like, she hadn't signed up for that. She had to host people for tea. She had to go to all the coffee mornings. She had to da 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 da. Like she suddenly had a job she hadn't signed up for. And I think you know, women historically, that happened a lot. And 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 in the context of this novel, the characters, you know, yes, very privileged. And and I, I wanted to write about the strangeness of being thrown into that level of privilege. And and the very weirdness of it, right? I mean, any sort of domestic employment is very strange because it's business but it's also intimate right it's also totally personal and i mean in the case of this novel you know they're they're having people come and live in and i mean it's pretty intense and there are numerous people and i I wanted to that's what for me part that's what the the novel is is insignificant part about is this Here's this woman who lands in this strange place and and essentially her community is people who are paid to be there, which is weird. <laughs> um, but 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 I think even if you have a you know, when you hire a babysitter or you hire somebody to, you know, help clean up your backyard or whatever it is, th- that's a very particular and 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 kind of un- potentially uneasy relationship that that is on the borderline between personal and professional. Well, especially childcare, I find like you're having somebody look out for your children and you're just meeting them. <laughs> like oftentimes these things happened in under harried circumstances, at least in my life, where you're like, you need somebody quickly. And then so- suddenly somebody sitting in your living room and 
uh, you're just having to make a decision. And it's like, oh, these are just only the two most precious people to me in the whole world. Right. <laughs> Please right. take good care. <laughs> and, and and then there's the, you know, then there's the whole thing of like, how much do you supervise that in the beginning? Because you don't also don't, you know, it's this sort of dance of you don't want to seem as though you don't trust somebody. Right. Because that doesn't, that's doesn't set a good precedent for the relationship. If, if you're like hovering in some creepy way, but you also don't really want to, don't really want to kind of, go away for eight hours on day one, right? Like, All that how old stuff. are your kids? Uh, 11 and six. Right, 11. so you're still kind of in that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to talk a bit more about your mother because hearing you say that this was an exploration of what it was to have been like for her, um, that resonates. And it resonates in particular thinking about something that I read, which moved me a lot, uh, about your mom and how she had wanted to attend law school, but made sacrifices because she was a mother and had to take care of you and your siblings and, or sibling or siblings. Is it, was it one, yeah. one, one, one sibling, but it was something that she said toward the end of her life where she said, there's so much of life to get through after you realize that none of your dreams will come true. Is that something she said? Yes. yes God, that line say. just crushes me. And yet. I, you know, I understand it completely. That is the nature of life or usually is the nature of life. And I might, as a reader and knowing this, understand a dream life as a kind of grieving, uh, like active grieving, constructive grieving, like an exploration of your mother's past and decisions that were made either by her or on her behalf that impacted her and how she might have sorted through that. So I don't know. I have, I have older parents. They're still with me, uh, thankfully, but it's certainly on my mind, you know, the fact that we don't have forever and how lucky you are to have your parents with you long, uh, long may they be with you and, and, and may there be the chance, you know, to ask them all. I mean, that's one of the things I don't, my parents are no longer living and there's so many questions I would have loved to ask and didn't ask. And, and I think, it takes it actually takes so long to come to see our parents as just as people and not to be judging you know well she was no good at this and he failed at that and they you know their relationship damaged me in this way or you know i feel like okay all right that's true but everybody we're all just people we're all doing our best you know we're faced with these circumstances <clears throat> and i think i realize now in a way that i didn't when i was 25 how very different the world in which she grew up, in which they grew up, the expectations for girls and 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 women, and and how how uh, ind independent minded you had to be to to buck those to, to to sort of you know get past that or get through it. And people did, women did. You know, there were many remarkable and amazing women doing incredible things, but you 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 had to you had to push against the conventions a lot harder. And, and, and I'm aware of that more because I can see, you know, my, my daughter is 20, my son's 18. And, and I know they, they think of my, uh, when I tell stories of, of, of being young in the eighties and, and, and it seems very quaint to them. And I, and I'm like, no, 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 we were, we were, you know, out there and radical and this and that. And they're like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all right, sure. You were mom. Right. Um, it, but, but, but we were aware 
we had to push to change things and yet weren't aware of how much they'd already changed, if you see what I mean, right? Like um, I, I remember hearing Samantha Power and she was talking about being the uh, secretary to the UN, right? The US secretary to the UN and, and or whatever the position is called and, and, and about the number of women who were at the UN representing countries to the UN and, and how slowly, how tiny that had been in say 1980 and, you know, comparatively far more in 2010. But she said, we're, we're, we're working at a rate where we won't be at parity before sort of 2090, right? We won't be at gender equality at the UN until 2090. And, 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 and that's when you realized that the, I guess the arc of history is long, as we well, know, um, you know. That's right. Yeah. I mean, but it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to point out, especially in trouble. I mean, when, when have times not been troubled? They seem especially troubled nowadays, uh, I would say. But I think it can be easy to overlook the progress that has been made. I, I want to say Steven Pinker. I've listened to something or read something by Steven Pinker where he speaks to this. Like there is obviously a lot more to do. But there are reasons for good cheer if you look backwards at the long arc of history. Like there has been great progress made in so many different ways. Not, it's not to say that things are done or finished or all good, but certainly, you know, I think a, a reasonable case could be made that we're making good progress on a lot of very important fronts. Hopefully it'll be enough. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's debatable, but I like to think sometimes because I can tend toward maybe pessimism. It can be nice sometimes to try to spin that around. And I want to, before I forget, I want to ask you if you have seen, like thinking about a dream life, I, I couldn't help but think about this show, White Lotus. Have you seen this? I have seen White Lotus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I, I drew a parallel just because I think White Lotus, I'd just seen uh, a couple episodes of and liked quite a bit. And I was like, oh, you know, these two works are in a kind of dialogue because like, you know, all this stuff that you were talking, all the all this stuff that we were talking about with respect to service professions, especially domestic service professions, those kinds of jobs are very similar to service professions in the kind of like ritzy resort of white right. Lotus where the hospitality industry, the hospitality where, where the intimacy is similar, maybe for slightly different reasons. But like if you're a masseuse and you're dealing with somebody on vacation who is, I don't know, like has headed out to the islands in the wake of a divorce or is dealing with deep grief, you might have a conversation that is very intimate with somebody yes. that you barely know. Or if you are working as the nanny, for somebody's kids and especially if you're living in like my goodness you're going to get to know these people in all sorts of different ways so i don't know i was just curious if that was something that you'd seen i'm sure it probably i think it postdates the composition of this book so i don't think it, it does but i but but it's interesting i i really i thought that show was riveting and and it's interesting because it is on the one hand an evisceration of privilege right and and on the other it's chiefly this is what this horse thief is like right everybody is as the old expression would have it hoist on their own petard like the narrative doesn't need to go out of its way to impose false plot moves on the characters it's following the characters who are behaving as themselves 
and they will do all, and say all the dreadful things or the awkward things or the uncomfortable just you know i mean the, each person is being themselves and 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 in that complexity of being a self you know like the um the parents of the the parents i can't remember the characters names or anything but the parents of the family with the son and the daughter and the daughter's friend sure th those parents are on the one hand ghastly and on the other just parents and and another moment's just a couple trying to get get through midlife you know and and I, like you can see them in 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 all those aspects all those facets over the course of the of the the program if they were if they were simply villainous if they were just awful and nothing but awful that wouldn't be interesting. What's interesting is that the mom tells the sister to be nicer to the brother. The the dad is trying to, you know, I don't know, make connections with like I feel as though everybody's they're trying in their ways and they're both ghastly and and in moments sweet, you know. Well, yeah, no, like that yeah, that's a really, it's a good point. And I always think of social media. I think that this line that you've repeated about was a checkoff and the horse thieves and not needing to place a value judgment on the morality of the horse thief, but instead to just say, this is what the horse thief is like. That's a useful thing to remember for writers, especially I think in this age of digital existence where I, I feel anyway, there's like this social pressure to have to make a value judgment on things constantly. And that's not the project in fiction. I should know this, but it's nice to be reminded of it. We don't need to, in storytelling, we don't need to sit around moralizing about whether or not somebody's good or bad. Just show them as they are and let, and, let the reader make those. Right. And, 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 you know, each of us may have a diff different opinion too, right. you know, I mean, y y we, we might see the balance fall differently and feel like, well, he has some bad characteristics, but overall, I think he's a good guy, you know, and somebody else might have the opposite feeling. Yeah, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of, I, I'm going to, my memory is so bad. You know, I watch all of my television before falling asleep. So it's always like, I watch like a single hour episode over like four nights. It's, it's, it's really ridiculous. But there's a character in White Lotus who is, what is she? Is she divorced or grieving? But she's very beautifully drawn because she's kind of a mess, but she's share, she's kind of oversharing with her masseuse and she really needs a massage. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. I think her mom has died. So, yeah. And then at some point she says like, but I hated her, but yeah. I can't live without her. Like, <laughs> right. But if you watch the whole thing, I don't, I don't know if you've seen, I've seen the whole thing. Like, she actually ultimately behaves terribly because she holds out promises to the masseuse that she... She, she's like, I'm going to change your life. We're going to do this thing together. It's all going to, and then she kind of can't follow through. And, and I think one of the things that, that for me, I appreciate about the, that narrative is that what she does is terrible and thoughtless, right? And totally selfish. She's self-absorbed. And at the same time, she, she almost couldn't be any different. So if in fact she were to follow through and fulfill all her promises to the masseuse and change her life, you wouldn't believe it. Right. Because like, it wouldn't be true. Right. <laughs> like right. the person who is this person who we've seen all these, we've seen the scenes leading up to it. We know that she's the person who, who lets people down and, and, and kind of forgets and goes off on her own and does her own thing. You know? and, and what a, what a, what a, like, what an accurate portrayal of privilege too. like the privileged person at the resort who is finding comfort 
and you know a place to sort of unload some miseries you know on this masseuse it's getting some relief and then in a moment of like benevolence you know or like a fit of benevolence it's like i'm going to help you i'm going to change your life but then sort of like falls out of it and bails or doesn't doesn't follow through that seems true to life (laughs) totally true to life totally true to life and and i I guess that's the thing all i'm trying to say is that is that that's following the character truthfully because you you might want to have a as it were, politically more optimistic story in which such a character who you think will disappoint the masseuse doesn't and right. But it just wouldn't ring true. It just, you'd have to have a whole different character then, right? That, 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 that woman would have to be a whole different person with a whole different history and self-understanding in order, you know, in order to behave differently. So I guess, I guess, all I, what I'm getting at there is that I, just to sort of put it in broader things, like I'm a writer who really believes in character. I feel like we are who we are because of who, where we are, when we were there, you know, who we were with, and this combination of that with our, our, our individual traits. And that when something like a, a TV show or, or, or a novel or a narrative is working really well, it's, it's because it's, it's, it's following the, the truth of the complexity of these people rather than imposing a plot on them from outside. Right. Mm. Um, it's actually saying, okay, what would, what I know Brad, if I know Brad really well and I put Brad in this situation, can I imagine what Brad will do rather than saying, okay, I'm going to have a guy who lives in LA and I'm going to have him, I want him to like, you know, run off with a million dollars. Right. Like, the question is, who is the person? That's always the first question. I, I was going to say, I don't mean to interrupt, but like I'm thinking of people listening who might be writers or aspiring writers and trying to be aware or to differentiate between when you're imposing a plot on a character and when you're following the truth of the character. I have to imagine you're going to say that it's an intuitive process. You have to sort of feel it. But is there anything else you could add to that in terms of like how in a nuts and bolts way you discern as a writer when you're on the right track and when you're doing things in a way that's um, true to the character versus imposing on the character. Sometimes when I'm, I'm with my students, I, I who are just beginning fiction writing and, and, and I have them do exercises like character portraits or dialogues or whatever, based on somebody they know really well or people they know really well. And they're almost always really good, right? Like, oh, if you know the character, you know what they're going to say, and it's going to ring true. Fancy that. And I realize that that comes back to the old, you know, the truism, like, write what you know, and nobody wants to hear write what you know. We don't want to be trapped in, in, you know, only in our experience. But, But I think as a starting point, it's certainly true that the more you know about a character, the better you're going to write their story. It's like um, chopping all the vegetables before you you make the recipe. I'm a big believer in sort of taking the time to kind of figure out who your characters are. And obviously, as you're writing, you figure out more and more. But, but if you start knowing nothing, I think that can be a little scary. And you can't always tell whether you're on the right track or not if you haven't, if you haven't thought about it a little bit before you embark. Do you write bios? Do you do that kind of work when you're building a character or is it less formal than that? It's less formal than that, but I certainly, in my head I do. And, and I feel as though there's, there's, cause it's also, there's a sort of 
like a piece of music almost. It's about it's about interactions of people. So you have to have some you have to have some sense of what that chemical reaction will be. It's like if you don't know what the chemicals are, how will you know what the chemical reaction is going to be? So I think you have to have some sense of, of, of that. And, and that's like putting two musical, you know, having a, a line of music with two musical instruments. You have to know how they sound together. So I want to ask you about your tendency. I mean, I, I'm going to read something to you that has been written about you and your work and how you have a, pre, uh, a quote, preoccupation with precisely the stories that tend to be most invisible, those of unorthodox women and their relationships with one another, speaking of chemical reactions, as daughters, sisters, best friends. Does that seem like an accurate statement? I mean, I, I certainly have written more about women characters than about men characters, though I've written, it's not as though there are no men in, anywhere. But yeah, I think that's not, inaccurate I, I i think i'm always maybe i'm a, a naive optimist but but i actually believe that almost anything is interesting like almost anybody's interesting I, I, i'm i'm just so curious you know right isn't the world so endlessly that's the terrible thing about life being short like there's just so much that we could find out if we we're given the world enough in time. So, so I felt as though that, that there, there are stories that we automatically assume are interesting. And I thought those stories will get told anyway, often. And then there are stories that people aren't paying attention to. And yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm interested in those. Okay. So a question, and I, and forgive me, cause I know it must be strange to like read people's assessments of your body of work. I got to imagine that's like, Oh, do I even agree with that? Is that what I did? <laughs> you know, but I, I'm wondering if you, at the start of your career or as your career has evolved, have developed any kind of sense of mission or any kind of unified theory of your own work. Is that the way your brain thinks about such things? Like, is women's interiority or the kinds of hidden stories or inner lives of women that we don't often see in popular narratives? Like, is this something that you've internalized as? your project or is that way off base? Well, you know, for a long time when I was younger, I would have said, oh, I write about displacement, right? That was my, like my first books, I would say the displacement. And so I think I have written a lot about women. The preponderance of my characters are women, but I, I think I, for myself would say more broadly, you know, I, I'm interested in, in a character, a set of characters in a situation I'm interested in it's I feel it's like being a safe cracker or something. You're you're kind of listen you're just putting your ear against the world and kind of listening, you know? Hmm. And, and and that and that for probably a bunch of reasons maybe it's been easier for me to hear or I have more readily heard the the crackling sounds uh of women characters <laughs> rather than the crackling sounds of men, but it's not it's not because I um, don't think men are interesting or, or it's not because I exclusively, I mean, in a broader way or coming from another angle, I, I guess I'd say there are so many untold stories, right? There are so many stories yet to be told. Um, and would that one had the gifts to tell them all, but luckily there's a, there, there's an ever growing and ever more diverse chorus of, of different voices telling different stories. And, and then you tell the ones you can, you know? So 
I want to ask a, a bit of a selfish question because I'm in the process of uh, publishing a book or about to publish a book. Congratulations. Yes, Thank I'm... you. And I'm like going through this sort of pre-publication psychological experience of alternately liking the book and not liking the book <laughs> uh, or questioning myself. Like, what did, did, what did I do? Like, is this typical? Have you ever been through something like this? Like, I'm always curious to know how writers relate to their own work. And I sometimes feel like maybe there are people who are like really well adjusted who are just like, I love it. I love my books. I love my babies, you know? And then there are people whose temperament is more like mine where I'm like, sometimes I like it. Other times I'm like, what did I, you know, I truly like baffled as to the fact that it even exists. Like, how did it happen? So what is your experience with this as somebody who has built a body of work? Do you even think much about it? Is it something you even... I, I totally, I totally, I, I'm totally with you in that experience of sort of veering between one feeling and and another. I, and I remember being in a, on a panel with the, the writer, Catherine Harrison, and, and somebody asked her, do you write, do you like your books? And she said, I write my books because I have to, like, they they feel incredibly urgent and necessary to me. I'm not even sure she said that I would read my books if I, if I, if, you know, if they weren't from me, like, it, it, it's almost, it's almost as though it's, bigger than yourself like do you know what I mean and and so in in that sense then there's this separate question like when it goes out in the world what is it who knows and and I have to say I, I, I've taken in one sort of so many dark nights of the soul along the way right and um you know they, they they'll be with us surely all our lives but but at one sort of dark night of the soul of somebody not liking one of my books and my agent said to me Claire if you love a song and you play it for a friend and they don't love the song. Does that make you think it's not a good song? And I said, no, of course not. And he said, well, there you go, right? Like there are different things for different people in different moments. Like it, it's a song. Yeah, that's a good point. And I wanna zero in on in different moments because I think about this all the time when it comes to criticism, when it comes to the way that a book or any work of art is received, is that the, the set of circumstances, the weather that day, what season you read something in, all of that stuff factors into how you're going to perceive it. Of course it would. And so I, you know, I, I think the first time I ever really gave serious thought to this was thinking about movie reviews and criticism and like, Maybe I was watching like that old Siskel and Ebert show, but I just thought I found myself sort of like with the remote control in hand being like, well, what kind of mood were they in when they sat in the theater that day? Like, did they have indigestion? You know, like anything could, I mean, there's so many different circumstances that could color the way that we receive a work of art. And so I think the same thing applies to me when I'm evaluating my own. Yeah. And, and I also, you're in that Windsor publication. How May. Soon? May. So you're like, that's it. You're actually at the kind of darkest midpoint. Cause it's, it's like not <laughs> close enough. There's no relief for a while yet. Right. right, like right. You're, you're, you're like in your head with it for another couple months. I mean, perhaps maybe things will start to kind of, I guess like those Kirkus or whatever, those will come soon. Ish. Right. Yeah. Ish. But, but it is such a strange gestation time. Right. And, and it's, it's sort of not in your hands, but not in the world. And, and that's a weird time, but I think to be calm and to be like, I, I, I did this 
because there's also like we're changing the whole time right there's you know all those adages about you never you see a friend and you think you're seeing the same person but everybody's changing the whole time blah, blah. and it's the same like the you that that finished the book however long ago i don't know six months or maybe a bit longer but the, the you that finished the book is changing and evolving and and you go back and maybe you know i mean you change a sentence or two now but honor and respect to the self of the self that put the pen down with the final, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I, I find that I, I don't like rereading stuff I've written, but because I, I don't have a lot of, I'm always, um, I'm always made anxious and unsettled by the self that was. But, but, but it seems a wonderful thing to accept each version of ourselves and each iteration of ourselves and say, "Power to you!" Like, bravo, me. It's a, the best way that I've heard it described is that it's a snapshot from that particular stretch of your life so a book that you write in your 20s you have to be forgiving as you look back right. on it many years later you know that was just the snapshot of you then you know and so of course yes it's going to reflect that and and i think other people are not likely to have all the problems with it that i might or you might or you know the writer might of course, of course they won't. I can't wait to read it. It's really exciting. I can't wait. Well, we'll see, you know. <laughs> um, I want to read back something that you said that also resonated with me as I was prepping for this. You said, I reckon you don't write to please other people. That's what your integrity is. And I think I've heard similar statements or read similar statements, and i like to think I believe this, but it helped me to be reminded of it. Uh, that's a good star to steer by. Like when you sit down to write, even for somebody like you who has had the very rare experience of having like high literary and commercial success at the same time, I think that might be the hardest needle to thread in publishing maybe, but you've had that happen. Uh, you did not sit down to write with commercial success in mind, correct? Correct. And, and, and I, there's, I'm trying to think if it's Cyril Connolly, the British critic, maybe said something like, if you write to please others, no one will be pleased. And if you write to please yourself, at least one person is pleased. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, and, and I think he said something like that. I think it was Cyril Connolly. And I feel like I, I, I only ever agree with that more. Like, I, I just, I, I know so many cases of people trying to please editors or agents, um, changing things and just kind of feeling lost after, you know, I understand that, especially for people who are starting out, who are trying to get published, it's very hard to say, I'll just do my own thing. Especially if you've had 20 rejections from editors, you're like, well, I guess my own thing isn't working, but there are wonderful editors and wonderful publishers and I'm incredibly fortunate. I have a, you know, I'm very blessed in my amazing editor and um, editor here and editors in some other countries too. And so I don't mean to diss the publishing industry, but I feel as though the considerations that, that, that they have are really often really different. And the considerations that they have have to do with what's fashionable right now, what they think will sell, which they only really know from what has sold before. But what's fashionable today won't be fashionable in two years, right? So by the time you finish the book, it won't be fashionable if what you're trying to be like, I, I just feel as though you, it seems an endless morass. It seems like quicksand to try to 
to try to respond to the outside world. And, and, and back to that thing of a song, like if you sing the song that feels true to you, you got to hope out there there's somebody who, as it were, recognizes the melody. Like, you got to hope. You yeah. can't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, there's like a balance because if you sing the song that excites you, that you yourself like genuinely like and enjoy, then I think that's probably a good indicator. Sort of like if you're writing something and you, you find yourself laughing, then probably there, there's going to be some readers who laugh too. I, I think that sometimes I have gone too far into my own thing and can, and can lose sight of the fact that there is hopefully going to be a reader at the other end of the line. Uh, you do have to have some of that too. You are trying to communicate with somebody. So I don't know. I, I've made that mistake where I feel like, well, this is just too interior. And, you know, I'm not actually honoring the fact that somebody's got to read this and reckon with it. And so it's that balancing act. And maybe that's been harder for me than it is for some. Like, I feel like I have some writer friends who are just have an excellent and kind of unerring sense of audience. And not just as writers on the page either, but like also like on social media or even in conversation, just like they have that great instinct. And then for others of us, I think maybe it's something that you have to work at a little bit more and try to hone. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, and, and I think those now, you know, my kids are big, but, but from the time when they were small, I, I, I see everything now in terms of like the kindergarten classroom and, and, you know, there's the kid who, who comes in and goes in a corner and takes the blocks out and starts making a tower and or whatever, a little world and doesn't need anybody else there at all. And then there are the kids who go to the coloring table and, um, you know, and, and, and are, are social and communicating the whole, like, I, like we're just all different beings. And, and, um, and I think there are upsides and downsides to each way of being, you know, and, and if you're somebody who is great at that unerring, pitch for other people, right? You're able to listen and somehow gauge what will feel right. You might lose the sense of who you are. And if you're somebody who is more on at the interior and more like the, the kid who goes in the corner by himself and makes his own world, um, you know, you, you, you might, it might then be harder that transition to community might be a little more, you have to kind of make a little more effort for it, but, but you're also not in danger of losing sight of what you wanted, you know, of mm -hmm. what you want to do. I mean, because it is some, it's always, I, I, as I'm always, I feel like I say a thousand times, you know, a year, maybe not a thousand times a day, but it's all a balance of freedom and constraint. It's right. all a balance of freedom and constraint. That's right. And I feel like, and we're all in different, we're all navigating that in a different way, you know, so, okay, I want to ask you about the, we talked about threading this needle between like high literary success and commercial success. Uh, the most prominent example in your uh, oeuvre is uh, The Emperor's Children, correct? That would be the book that hit biggest. Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, do you, do you have a sense as to why? And like when you were composing it, like when the idea was kind of congealing for you when you were getting into the book uh, in the drafting phase. Did you have a sense that this was happening or possible? Do you know what I'm saying? Was there anything different? You know, 
what's funny about it um, is so so I had started the book that book so it was published 2006 I want to say something like that and and I had started a novel um, early in 2001 with some of these characters it wasn't going very well and I was pregnant with our first child and she was born in July of 2001 and then she was six weeks old when 9-11 happened so for some time I was not writing anything and then I got started again and then not that long after I was pregnant again and we had our second child in 2003 and so the truth about that novel is like it I was not on drugs I was as it were on babies but but I (laughs) same thing same thing but, but I don't really like how did like I don't really I couldn't tell you when I wrote it how I wrote it in what sort like at the end I had a a fellowship and um that gave me an office and a stipend that we spent on babysitting and so like the last sort of push for that thank god for Radcliffe that was the Radcliffe fellowship so I so I feel like I know how I finished it but like two-thirds of that book I have no, like, I really couldn't tell you. I don't know what I thought I was doing. I don't know how, like, all I can tell you is I was writing it in short chapters and I was writing it in short chapters because I only ever had a little bit of time at once, right? Like, I, so, so I didn't, I, I couldn't possibly, I didn't, I couldn't possibly write like a, a 30 page chapter. That was unthinkable. So, so I feel like the, the, the circumstances dictated the form a little bit. And, and then it, afterwards, I think, thinking about it, I would say, it was set in New York City. People like New York City. It was set among sort of it was it had sort of a group of younger, youngish young protagonists and 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 they had glamorous ambitions. And I think all those things are more appealing than say my my novel about a, a single elementary school teacher and her thwarted ambitions to be an artist. I feel like. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, life circumstances imposing a kind of aesthetic discipline on you that you talk about writing in short chapters that was the only kind of chapter you could write as you said i think about a conversation i had years ago with amy bender and i want to say at the time she was nursing twins or it was like you know she was a new mom if i'm remembering correctly or she was reflecting on new motherhood with twins and was talking about how she was writing like 10 to 15 minutes a day or in 10 to 15 minute little windows and she was kind of coming up with like little fragments so same sort of thing. I think that sometimes that can be good. Like aesthetic discipline or aesthetic restrictions or confinements can sometimes be creatively generative in ways that might surprise us. The other thing that I think about, and maybe I'm just projecting myself onto this, is that sometimes you get into a situation like new motherhood or new fatherhood where time is compressed the amount of sleep you're getting is obviously restricted. And in a way, it kind of would, I'm imagining, like prevents you from getting in your own way. You're less self-conscious. You've only got these little windows. You're working on like three hours of sleep. You're exhausted. (laughs) Maybe in a way that serves the work because you can't sit there neurotically obsessing about it or totally. Do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe it was a blessing in its way. And also... There is a certain like, kind of bliss, too, of new parenthood. It's fun to have a baby, even though it's a pain. You know, it's so one they smell good and they're sweet. And I don't know. There's a lot of hope and energy in that, too. So it makes sense to me that this book was born in that way, hearing it described. Yeah. 
totally. And and I I you know OCD overthinker. You know, it it with my earlier books. I, I could probably have recited them off by heart. Like I had gone over and over and over them so many times, you know, when I was writing them and with, with the Empress children, like I, I would, somebody would say, you know, that bit where such and so happens. And I'd be like flipping through the book, trying to find it. Cause I didn't know. I mean, I remembered that it happened in the book, but I couldn't tell you whether it was on page 25 or page 225. Like I'd literally like, it was all a kind of jumble. So yeah, it was, it, it was freeing in that way. And, and maybe for the good, you know, also it should be said that it's unrepeatable. Like it's biologically unrepeatable. You can, I mean, I guess you could continue to have babies to a certain point, but you can't just continue to have babies because it's good for your fiction. <laughs> it seems like a one, it's like a one-time deal, you know, like, and I don't think it's necessarily advisable to invite, chaos into your life because you think it's going to somehow force your hand as an artist. No, <laughs> I guess, though, I guess people might do that. Some people do do that, but I think it, I don't know. It seems like a one shot deal. Like it's a period of your life and it worked and every book is different, but that one for whatever set of reasons, including the ones we just talked about, like it hit and it's always fascinating to think about why. Uh, another thing that I think about when I think about the Emperor's Children and what we're talking about is a conversation I had not too long ago with Louise Erdrich, where she was talking to me about how she writes and writing, drafting by hand, which I think you do as well, correct? Yes. Not necessarily having, especially within the constraints imposed by motherhood, uh, especially when you're mothering young children, not having a set time or a set place uh, or even set materials to work on. She was telling me about like the backs of napkins, you know, at a restaurant where she's writing. Right. Like she really, in a way, kind of shamed me. Um, I can be a little bit too precious and finicky about needing my circumstances and my cup of tea and, you know, all the different neurotic ways that writers sort of ritualize themselves. Like she just got it done. And something she said to me struck me. She said, what I really needed was a husband to sort of, or she said I needed a wife. I think I'm remembering this correct to like help take care of the domestic stuff so that I could work. Um, but she didn't have those options and she has been prolific and accomplished in all sorts of ways anyway. So I guess I'd like to ask you like, first of all, how you might respond to that, but also to kind of get into your process, like how you work, when you work, just have like the nuts and bolts of how it happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I, I feel as though I've actually said a line like that, you know, every writer needs a wife. There is some sense in, in which the, the, and, and there's a whole other conversation, right. About kids. Cause we love our kids and we, um, and, and also we're aware even now when my kids are like 20 and 18, I'm aware that each day they're changing and it's precious. And if you miss, doing something like if there's a chance to do like something with them and they um and they want to do it you know do it because right but that aside i mean i used to say i now am i'm in the garage like we about um 5 years ago we the garage was falling down we renovated it and it's a it's a study and and i'm in my so, garage right now too so we are speaking garage to so, garage it's one it's wonderful it's, isn't it <laughs> it's a great thing and but but before that i never i didn't have it a study or an office, you know, at the kitchen table. And I used to say, and it's, it, it was true. Like I can work anywhere 
it doesn't matter about the noise as long as I'm not responsible for the noise. So I could work in Starbucks and there could be music playing and people going by, but, but they weren't my kids. Like I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't have to pay attention. The, the issue is always the, the, it seems to me is, is how to get, how to get a space where you're of a, a, a focus. There was a, uh, maybe it was in the guardian and interesting. There's a book coming out about focus and how it's been stolen from us, um, by social media and so on. Just the, the, the ability to actually keep our eyes on one piece of paper for a long stretch of time. You know, we're, we're all, we're all sort of out of shape with that, but, but the circumstances, you know, you set them up. I, I, I totally admire Louise Erdrich. I mean, I admire her in so, so many ways, but I admire her for being able to, you know, sort of write on a napkin in a restaurant. I don't, I don't think I could ever do that, but I could, I could write at Starbucks. And now I don't go to Starbucks. Now, now I, for a long time, I, I avoided teaching full time because just because of the brain space, right? You're, you're with manuscripts. They're not yours. You're attend, you know, you care about your students, you're, you're attentive. It, it, it just sort of takes up too much it's just seeping into the, like a flood seeping into the part of the house where it shouldn't go. And and so I'm, I'm actually um, taking a leave this semester from teaching to work because I, 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 can't, I can't actually teach and write at the same, I can revise, I can, I can revise while I'm teaching, but I, I, it's very hard for me to actually write. So then I have the summer and I have, you know, some time in the winter, but, but, but I don't have a big chunk of time if I'm teaching. Yeah, I've heard that said. Uh, a lot of conversations I've had with writers who teach, which is a lot of writers, and the summers, the breaks, but to actually be composing while also trying to absorb all of your students' writing, that's hard. And it's, and it's also a ton of work. Like reading all those pages and thoughtfully giving criticism and feedback, I mean, there's only so much hard drive space not to reduce the human brain to a machine but you know what i mean like totally I, yeah i i i feel that for sure it's a it's a lot so we, yeah, it's the moment when you think if only i'd been a poet <laughs> right, right. they'd only write 20 lines right. that would be so much easier than 20 pages so much you know? easier so much easier and the pressure too cuz you want to do a good job of giving feedback and you have to be a careful reader in that case. You have to really give it your attention. So I guess maybe a nicer way of saying it is there's only so much attention to go around. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, that's, I think it's also important to say you, you want to be attentive and then you also get invested and you care, you know. And so when, when you have a student who's really working hard and, and passionate and excited and gifted and, you know, this story is getting better and better, like you, you, you want to be there to help you know, so, yeah, I, I, I think I'm just not good at compartmentalized. Some people are really good at compartmentalizing. So for me, like now I have a I have I have a physical space and I have a space of time. And that's great for me. I want to talk a little bit about your trajectory, like career trajectory and education, like just your formation as a writer. Obviously, I think the events of your childhood, the moving around the having this family that is like multinational. Is that a way of putting it? <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, you go to boarding school, like to kind of like put a halt to the moving, I think is was sort of the rationale. And then you go on to Yale and then Cambridge. Is that right? Yes. And then you come back after those experiences to get your MFA at Syracuse. 
Yes. Which at the time, I don't, I would imagine it's not this way anymore, but at the time was very much enthralled to like Raymond Carver minimalism. And yes. here you were. So can you characterize yourself in that context and talk about how you interacted with it? So it was a two-year program and I, and I stayed a year and I took a leave and then I didn't go back. So I didn't ever finish my MFA. I was already in love with the British guy who I'm now married to. So, so who, is, who is, we should say, James Wood, the esteemed literary critic for The New Yorker, correct? He is, a, he is, he is the, he does write literary criticism for The New Yorker. He does. Yes, James. And he was in London and I was in Syracuse. And so I, you know, I, I, I was, I wasn't perhaps as fully present, you know, in, in the Syracuse program as I might have been in some ways. And I was also young. I, I mean, I think the program was small and we were, I think, six or seven, seven people in my class and a fiction and several were in their late thirties and several were in their late twenties and I was 23. And so I, I was significantly young, I think. And certainly now I, I see the reasoning, you know, I often am counseling young writers. I'm like, take some time between college and your, <laughs> and your MFA. Like, don't go straight on, you know, just go live a little. Um, because I think I was in that space where I, 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 I needed to live. I'd been in school uninterruptedly since sort of the age of two, you know, and I, I kind of needed to be living. There, I, there were wonderful teachers in that MFA. Toby Wolf was teaching at that time there. Um, Raymond Carver had died in 89, um, and I got there in 90. So he'd been dead a year. So his spirit was still very much there. And there were really wonderful things about the program. And, and I think I, some combination of where I was in, you know, it's what we were saying about you follow the character and you'll get the plot. Like where I was as a, as a character, the combination of being sort of young and in love with somebody far away. And, and also I think, you know, I was saying this to, to my daughter who's 20 and I said to you, so much of my youth seems murky. Like, and it's not just that my memory's not good. It's that actually stuff seemed really murky then. Like <laughs> I didn't really understand why I did things or why other people did things or, you know, you'd find like, Oh, that friend, we stopped talking. I don't really know why we didn't really have a falling out. It just kind of happened. Like, I don't know. I feel as though there was a lot of weird murky stuff and maybe young people today are not murky in the same way, but but I feel like I, I feel as though I was not somehow clear in my, in my intentions or my goals about going to Syracuse, except that I thought, here are these amazing writers I admire, not, not do I write like them or do they speak to me or, or, or is there an interesting conversation between their work and mine, but here are these writers I admire who are amazing and famous and you need to do an MFA if you're going to be a writer. And I feel like those were sort of unquestioned or unconsidered things on my part. And, and maybe if I'd had somebody who could talk it through with me, I might, I might have taken some time off and done an MFA later, or I might've, you know, gone somewhere else. I mean, like any number of things might've happened, but, but as it was, I mostly just wanted to, you know, get back to my boyfriend in London. <laughs> as as one does, right? And I mean, you, I have to say, you you had publication success relatively young, right? I mean, you did okay for yourself without the MFA. You got you got books done. You were published. 
I mean, I was I was published in the UK first because I was living there, and my first novel was published in London by uh, Granta Books, which you know was at the time was the sort of publishing offshoot of the magazine Granta Magazine, and um and then we moved to the states, and and in fact you know it, it was a an almost miraculous thing for me because nobody wanted to publish my novel here, and then Ray Hederman, who at the time who owns the New York Review Books, and at the time owned Granta, said in this sort of wonderful, for me, I mean, I don't, I don't think he's, but he said, I, I, I'm going to, let's have a pilot project and, and do some, and see what Granta publishing might look like in the United States. And and so Granta Books in the U.S. published three books, The Granta Book of the Family, Ivan Klima's Spirit of Prague, and my first novel. And and then, and then Granta U.S. never published any books, again, Granta U.S. as a publishing venture ceased to exist after that but but so my first novel was published in the u.s in, in a sort of almost it was almost like a, a, a like a patron as if ray hederman were a patron of the art i mean he is a patron of the arts but but specifically a patron of, of, of my, your art of my art and 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 i mean i i have a, a debt of lifelong gratitude for that and and then and then by another sort of extraordinary um circumstance that book was was a a finalist for the Penn Faulkner. And so, so that meant that a second novel could be published, you know, like I, I feel as though it, it might not have ha- happened that way. And in, in that instance, I feel a specific debt of gratitude to Francisco Goldman, the novelist who was one of the judges of the Penn Faulkner and, and, and who I think, you know, for whatever reasons, the song, <laughs> the song resonated with him, you know, and yeah, so I, I you know, I, th- there's so much luck and I've been, you know, I was, so lucky but 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 the whole story of being published in america you know it it was as uh we we were great friends with christopher hitchens and and i remember him i wanted to i wanted to ask you about this i love anecdotes with you know especially writers that i admire um but i know that you knew him so please continue well i was just gonna say there was one time over over dinner where he said you know claire would it kill you to write something people actually wanted to read (laughs) 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 And, and um and and so you know, I'm aware that that, you know, and and then I wrote The Emperor's Children and people did want to read it. But but up to that point, I, I, I hadn't really written things that people necessarily wanted to read. And 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 so to have them exist in the world was was incredible good fortune, you know, to have them be published was I was just really lucky. And was there anything I mean, I know we've already kind of covered this, but that had to maybe maybe Hitchens, like he planted that bug in your ear and you were like, OK, so now on this one, I'm going to try to write something that people would actually want to read. I know you can't write to please people. We've already discussed this. Your integrity lies in kind of following your own best instincts or whatever and and not thinking too much about how you're going to be received. But it's that balancing act again. You know, what would people like to read? How can I please the reader? That's not, I don't know, that's not like a terrible question to ask. No, no, not not at all. And, 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 you know, it's. I think back to like, you know, my... My, I think about like my dad was the person who always felt a, a, a trip should be educational, right? So like, here is the guidebook. We'll go to the museums, and now we're going to go to see the churches, and you know, and 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 my mom was like, "Can we just go to a beach? Can we just, <laughs> can we just go to a beach somewhere?" Please. And 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 so I I I, I have to um, I feel as though there's something very abiding and forceful about the that pedagogical like or that that kind of 
improving mentality. Like it's, it's sort of, it's the one that's to the fore, like don't waste time. Don't, you know, don't lie around doing that. And then every so often I kind of hear my mother's voice, like, can't we go to the beach? Like what's wrong with just having a good time? Right. Couldn't we watch a movie that makes us laugh? Like, yeah. and I feel like I, I actually, I, it seems to me that like to be a stand up comic is like to be a saint, you know, I feel like life is so hard and anybody who makes, the load lighter, like, wow. Right. So, so I feel like that's, you know, yeah. So, so yeah, it seems a great thing to write something that people actually want to read. And (laughs) Christopher Hitchens as a figure, obviously widely read, widely admired and all the rest. But to me, I think he's representative of kind of this, like a kind of writer that increasingly doesn't exist so much anymore, you know, like from another time or something like he had like that kind of hard drinking, but like great in conversation, able to like bang out, you know, totally really right. substantive works like very quickly, like with a hangover, you know, like... but, but not even just like, can I just say, cause I was at his house, like he would have a, he would have like eight people for dinner, 10 people for dinner, you know, smoking, drinking, da, 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 da. and then at one a.m. he would say, "You guys keep going. I've got to go write a piece." And he would just go in his study and write his piece, and the dinner party would go on, right? Like, so it wasn't even a hangover. Like he was, you know, he, he was, was drunk. <laughs> he was drunk. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's very, um, and I mean, it's an interesting question. When you went to his house, he'd say, "If you don't have a drink, it's your own fucking fault." So, uh, um, you know, the idea, like you were supposed to <laughs> fill your own glass, but he did fill people's glasses. And maybe he actually filled his glass less than. I mean, there were times in the later years when he'd obviously had a fair amount, but but maybe earlier on he was more continent than one assumed. I don't know, but he managed to write the pieces. Yeah, Un- I mean, unbelievable, and uh, just kind of cool to. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who knew him. Maybe I have and I didn't know it, but it's sort of like a, it, it's like a, a boozier version of the Louise Erdrich writing on restaurant napkins. <laughs> he was writing, right. you know, in the aftermath of a dinner party, which I can't even imagine. Like, I guess, uh, maybe, maybe the training as a journalist, I think sometimes that can be a lucky thing for writers because you learn to write on deadline and to just get things done. You know, so I'm imagining that was probably what he was writing. But I feel like genius is energy, right? Like it's the people with it's a life force thing. And I think he was just incredibly greedy for life. He just wanted more of everything. And I feel like there, that was not in that was not totally unproblematic, whatever the you know. But 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 he just he was avid, and 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 so it, it was almost as though the reason he would do both those things in one night is that he wasn't willing to sacrifice one for the other. And I think he said towards the end, maybe in the introduction to his final collection of essays, you know, that a, a quotation about burning the candle at both ends, you know, but it, 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 it sets, it has such a beautiful light or something. When you do, it has such a beautiful light. Like the, was the very specific acknowledgement of this avidity, which I, which I, hugely respect you know i I feel like yes more life is more life we have eternity for sleeping as omar Khayyam said yeah yeah i mean i I could use a little bit more of that like sometimes i can be like 
I'm tired. <laughs> I'm just going to go to bed. But me he, too. He me didn't. Too. He didn't. He 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 just went and like experienced it all. And also, I should say, some of this is is biological. Like he had the energy. I know you can summon it to a certain degree, but he was wired for it clearly. Yeah. Yeah. And others of us might not be to that extent. I think it's rare to actually have that kind of like vitality and avidity. Um, I want to ask you about your marriage insofar as it pertains to creativity. And I'm sure you've been asked about this before, but it's something I'd like for my audience to hear you talk about because it's fascinating to imagine being a writer of fiction and nonfiction and being married to a very good literary critic. How does that work? And like, does it like, is there, I mean, he's got to be a reader of yours, correct? Or no? Yeah. You know, I remember reading in Joyce Carol Oates's memoir about the death of her husband that he, that he never read her fiction. And that, that was so interesting. I mean, they never read each other's fiction. I guess that, that was really interesting to me. Yeah. James, James, we read each other's fiction. He writes fiction also. I read his criticism. I, I read some reviews. He reads some of them. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I always jokingly say, I mean, I've, you know, been asked many times. One of the jokes I, I make is that it's easy for me and hard for him because I give him my work and I want him to love it and to be the literary critic. And he has to square that circle, right? Well, it's not for me to figure that out. He right. has to figure out how to, <laughs> but, but, but he is also honest and he has, you know, and I, and, and, he, we know each other well enough that he, I think he, you know, he's, he knows when to be sort of generally vague and encouraging, like just keep going or, or when it's time to say, well, okay, let's talk about what I really thought. What I would say is that mostly, you know, a lot of our lives are about like, did you pick up the oat milk? Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, did you take the dogs out? But I think in all our everybody's relation in, you know, uh, life partners, romantic relationships, whatever you share more or less. So like if, if I were with a, if I were married to a particle physicist, there would be so much I couldn't understand, <laughs> right? Like there'd just be a whole lot of stuff we couldn't talk about. In fact, if I were married to a hedge fund manager, like there'd be so much I couldn't talk or an oceanographer or a, or an engineer, you know, like I, I feel as though if I were married to a school teacher, we could talk about a lot. Like if I were married to a librarian, we could talk about, but like in a lot of instances, there, there's, there's, there's just not much overlap between the personal and professional, right? People have sometimes pretty separate lives and, and, and for some people that's great, but it's almost like we're, we're members of a book cult, right? Like, <laughs> or, or like we're in a church, we're in a church of books. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. Like we really share a love of words and sentences and 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 narrative. I mean poetry too. But you know we just and so and so there's just a lot to talk about, you know, and that's pretty fun, yeah. you know. I mean, I gotta I gotta believe there's a symbiosis. You're making each other's work stronger. Of course you are. Who knows? Or who knows? Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe the opposite. Maybe, not. Maybe the opposite. But. But 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 what I would say is I feel like we're we're we have these we disagree you know we disagree about some writer or some novel and we have some chat about it you know and 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 I feel like some people have to wait for once a month book group for that like you've got I, it all the time like I can have it whenever it's nice yeah that's great uh, speaking of books that we love I read that you love 
or at least at one point were uh, like really admiring of Sabbath theater, the Philip Roth novel, and also the work of Thomas Bernhard. Uh, yes. I love like both of those books. Sabbath theater really worked on me. That's a wild book. Uh, totally. I read it not too long ago too. So it was like, I, I saw that. And I was like, Oh yeah. Like that, that's a book I'd like to talk about with somebody because it's just such a like anarchic almost like it just goes there. And it's such a, like a strange and unexpected book in so many great ways. That character is just over the top and very, very, very unique. I've never read anything like that before. And then so much energy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So much energy. And what's fascinating about it is that of course, after this is my nature, I do this show, I read the book and then I want to read about the writing of the book. And it was, I want to say it was Roth's favorite book of his, like he liked that one the best. And I think part of the reason at least that he liked it the best was that he had the most electric time writing it. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I, I think I feel as though it's, a, it's, it's, it's also so, I mean, it is fairly over the top in certain right, but it's also humanly true. And it's a, it's, uh, there's that, what is it? Edna St. Vincent Millay? No. Who is it that the, no, is it, is it, who is the pope? rage, rage against the dying of the light? Is it Dylan Thomas? Who is that? Anyway, that might be Dylan. That, that, I think that's Dylan, Dylan Thomas, Thomas, but I could be wrong. <laughs> but, that, but, but I feel like, but that's Mickey Sabbath is like, he's, he's going out guns blazing. Or like he's an aging guy and he does not want to be an aging guy. He wants to be the guy, like he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't want to sleep with his friend's wife. He wants to sleep with the daughter. Do you mean it's obscene, <laughs> but it's also, I feel like it's also capturing some, something that feels really true about, about this. Well, I'm, you know, I'm 55, like about this time of life when you're like, no, no, not yet. Like, right. not yet. like more, right. more, right. And at the same time, you're like, no, no, I have to end up at the cemetery because this is where we're headed, you know? And, and it starts with Drenka, right. Drenka has died like that, you know, this sort of exuberant, um, illicit, sexy affair that he had with this woman and she's oh, died. Yes. You know? And, and, and so th that's the sort of catalyst is after this, that he's, he's on this kind of journey, but I love that it seems to capture, I mean, that I feel as a reader, it captures something that, that probably a lot of people feel, certainly a lot of men in, in some greater or lesser version, and that you're just not really supposed to talk about. Right. Well, that's what, and that's what good books are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to say the unsayable or say the unsaid. And that one... If, if that one doesn't, then no book does, <laughs> because I mean, yeah. like, that one just says all of the unsayables. Um, and then Bernhard, you know, I I find him to be, I know he's really dark, but I find him to be very funny. And I prize that. It's really hard. I think maybe one of the hardest things to do is to be funny on the page consistently, to sustain a com comedic performance on the page in literary fiction. How many examples of that are there? There really aren't a ton in my reading experience. Like it's just, I cherish it. Uh, yeah. I, it. It's rare and he could do it. He, there's also something just very bracing and clear and kind of uh, unsettlingly true about his work, you know? Yes. Um, yes. But I don't know. I just, I, I, we have some of the same taste. The, those songs, yeah. uh, I like those songs too. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. I, I feel as though he too, you know, rage, rage is a certain element of his of his fiction too you know that his characters have a lot of resist i mean i think you know there's one hilarious thing about how 
the, I, I forget which novel it's in of Bernard's, but a guy who's complaining about the country and then he complains about the city and he said like he hates them both and that the only time he's really at all happy is on the train in between <laughs> the city and the country. <laughs> Neither here nor there. But I feel like it's 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 hilarious and it, and it's it, it's sort of a grumpy like you you know that grumpy guy like we you've been you've sat next to dinner at that with that grumpy guy and 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 at the same time it has all this like bigger symbolic kind of resonance of, you know, what is it to not be at home in your skin or not be able to be, you know, at ease in a place or, you know, it, it can provoke all these thoughts that are beyond, there's this sort of comic as, aspect, but it also has this bigger thing. And I, yeah, I agree with you. I think that the, this it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare to, to have these different layers. The last thing I want to talk with you about uh, before we part ways is uh, another book that you have in the offing called Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. Can you just give listeners an idea of, of what you're up to here and, and uh, talk about it a bit? Sure. So, so it's a, it's, it has a little subtitle, which is an autobiography and essays and it, and it's a combination of personal essays and also some of the literary criticism or reviews that I've written and 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 I I've written a fair number of the years and thank God they're not all in there by any means but but I chose ones that that are where I was writing about books or authors um that that have been that I feel like have changed me or that have shaped me so for me there's there's you know there are these two different parts which is like personal essays which are about things I think or people in my life or whatever whatever and then and then and then the books are also a little bit about art, just a little bit. But I think of those as, as not separate, which is to say, I feel, I mean, that the, there's a line that I have in the book, which where I said, like, I feel like we're shaped as much by our literarily lived lives as by our literally lived lives. And, you know, what for, for, for us to be able to talk about Mickey Sabbath, it's it's like he's a guy we both know. And, and you know, we have slightly different experiences of him, but enough overlap that we can, you know, we could probably talk for an hour about him. And, and by the way, and, I have to interrupt you. Have you taught that book? Have you taught Sabbath theater? Because your recollection of it was so clear. I was very impressed. You knew the characters and everything. Like, is it a book that you've taught, um, or is it just some one that just stuck to you? You know, I, I I don't. At the time when, or soon after it came out, my editor was named Drenka, so Drenka's name stayed. Oh, okay. Stay with me. Yeah. Um, but but I, I would. It's neither here nor there. But my, James used to teach that. And he said to me, he said to me not long ago last year, he said, can you believe I used to teach that book? Um, <laughs> it seemed, it seemed, seems a tough one to teach these days. I must sure, say. sure. Just, just super um, difficult material to, yeah. Um, anyway, so the, the books that, that shape your life or change your life, they're, they're, they're as important as, you know, experiences that you have in your life. So, so for me, it's, it's all sort of, an autobiography in a way it's I think of it as a kind of auto autobiography of a sensibility but there's stuff about like my childhood and there's stuff about my mom and my aunt and you know I mean and then there's stuff about Camus so you know um Camus was really important to me there's stuff about there's a wonderful novel by Magda Zabo the Hungarian late Hungarian writer called The Door which I when I read it I really felt feel like it changed the way I looked it's a short novel, very readable, changed the way I looked at the world, you know, and, and actually that relates, it's about a woman and her housekeeper. So that relates back to all the way to, to, to a dream life and the characters in a dream life. Like it, 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 um, yeah. Anyway, 
Well, look, we've brought things full circle. I feel like that's a nice place for us to wrap up. Uh, it was lovely to meet you. Congratulations on a dream life. Congratulations on the, how did you characterize it? An autobiography and essays? Yeah. Uh, Kant's little Prussian head and other reasons why I write. Just a delight. And uh, really appreciate your time and generosity uh, in talking with me. Oh, Brad, I, it's, I, it's I who thank you. What a joy to meet you. And I'm excited for your novel, which I will be getting in May. And uh, all the best. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. I'm so grateful. All right. That's Claire Massoud. What a great conversation. Her novel is called A Dream Life. It is available now from Tablo Tales. She also has a, another book out called Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write, an autobiography and essays. You can find her online at clairemassoud.com. You can follow her on Facebook. Again, the novel is called A Dream Life. Go get your copy right now. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive, more than 750 episodes, all are available for free. The entire library. This is a listener-supported show. If you like the program, if you listen regularly and you get something from it, support the show, if you can, over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod for as little as $1 a month. You can support the show. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will wish you a happy birthday, send you a postcard, all that kind of stuff over at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other P-P-L pod. I do a newsletter. Did you know that? You can sign up for the Brad Listy Other People newsletter over at otherppl.com, the show's official website. Just look over in the left sidebar. You can sign up. I send a newsletter once a week, usually, but never more than that, or very rarely more than that. So... Sign up for the newsletter. Also, please subscribe to the Other People YouTube channel. The entire archive of this podcast is on YouTube. Did you know that? Go search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and then hit the subscribe button. It's free, and it helps. Another great way to help the show is to rate it and review it over at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. If you can rate and review the show wherever you listen, that helps algorithmically. It helps other listeners find the show, essentially. What else? Oh, yeah. Pre-order my book. Let me know about it. I'll send you something in the mail. 